now we have the opportunity to continue in worship through the preaching of God's Word. We're going to continue in Ephesians chapter 1. We've been looking at Paul's prayer from the end of chapter 1 here. Last week we looked at verses 15 through 19, and these verses focused on what Paul prayed for these dear saints and the desired effects of his prayers. And this week we move into verses 20 to 23, which become something of a sidebar of worship within this prayer where Paul expands upon the glory of God as displayed particularly in the resurrection and glorification of our Lord Jesus. But since this is all one element of prayer and it all flows together, I'll ask that we read the whole prayer from Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, and then we will run down to verse 23. Ephesians 1, 15, and running down to verse 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is... God's holy word. This passage speaks much of the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And verse 19 kind of sets the stage for our passage in verses 20 to 23. But when you think of power, what immediately comes to mind for you? Maybe you think of political power, the ability of national leaders to sway world politics and the fates of many within their countries. Maybe you think of financial power, how with a word certain men and women and companies can swing entire fortunes on the stock markets. Maybe you think of physical power, the great strong men of history or even the great physical power shown in the incredible animals that God has given us through nature. And there are a few electricians among us that when they think of power, they think of their work. But there are as many avenues for us to define power as there are skills and abilities and forces here on this earth. But what about when you think of God's power? For me, I'm often pulled to those kind of three core attributes that come to mind, God's omniscience and his omnipresence. And, of course, his one attribute is omnipotence, which in itself is just to be powerful without limit. He is all-powerful. 
Starting in verse 19, Paul's prayer for these saints in Ephesus is that by the revelation of God, they would comprehend what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. When we are thinking of the great powers of this world, political, financial, physical, intellectual, whatever it might be, we're likely thinking about some of the things that have the greatest ability to influence our lives and direct the world around us. That in itself is the definition of power, the ability to influence the world. But it is not worldly men and worldly forces with their admittedly incredible levels of power that have the greatest ability to influence the lives of man. The ultimate power in this world, the force capable of affecting the most significant change in the human life is the gospel. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the work that has been done, God's power exercised towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty strength. God is the ultimate power and the gospel is how we know it. And when we talk about the gospel, we typically do a fairly adequate job in identifying the importance of the perfect and sinless life of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is one of those favorite kind of life verse type passages. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Many of us are very familiar with that. We are quite familiar that Christ lived a perfect and sinless life. And also, we cannot help but to acknowledge the, the death of Christ. If you ask just about any child what Jesus did for his people, the first answer is that he died on the cross for our sin. We recently spent a bunch of time in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We are quite familiar with the importance of the death of Christ. And both the life and death of Christ are incredible truths that should have great influence on our lives, but sometimes we allow these first two truths to overshadow these second two elements that we are going to look at today, the resurrection and the glorification of Christ. And we cannot allow that to be the case. Nothing that Christ did on this earth, no part of his existence was without purpose or meaning. And each part of his perfect sinless life, his effective substitutionary death, his resurrection on the third day, and his glorification to the right hand of God the Father. They're all necessary elements in the divine rescue plan that God sent in motion before the beginning of the world. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In our passage this morning, when Paul says to these saints in Ephesus, and to us today, that the immeasurable greatness of God's power, the mighty working of God's strength, it is worked, it is exercised, it is exerted, it is brought about, it is wrought. All of these are words used in our various translations, but it gets across that in this, the resurrection and the glorification of our Lord Jesus, may we know the incredible power of our God. May we know the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Recently, we talked about the inheritance and the seal of the Holy Spirit that we have received as God's people. And I don't think it's an accident here that Paul progresses to the resurrection and the glorification after talking about this inheritance. Our inheritance only comes if Jesus is indeed raised and glorified. We are all very aware, and even just naturally in our world, that there's something beautiful about the idea that one man would lay down his life for another. Throughout all of human history, that has been a defining characteristic of the greatest of men, that they would be willing to lay down their own lives, that they would be willing to sacrifice their own lives for their brothers. This is borne out in Scripture in John 15, 13, greater love has no man than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. But if I were to lay down my life for you, as noble as my intentions might be, and as loving of an action as that might be, I would die, and I would remain dead because I too justly deserve to die and stay dead, just as each of us do. Also, I am sinful. I am no more able to perfectly stand as a sacrifice for you than a sheep was able to stand as a sacrifice for the people under the old covenant. And as such, if I were to lay down my life for you, all of us, both of us, would remain eternally condemned because we are both fallen and sinful people. We recognize that there is value in being willing to lay down our life for one another. There is incredible love in being willing to lay down our life for one another. But there's something missing that we cannot pay for one another's burden. In Jesus, this is not the case. Just think, if Jesus had died and stayed dead, if he had gone to the cross and stayed dead, as many of those who would push back against Christ would say, one, he would have been made a liar, failing to accomplish what he has promised. Jesus said he would raise again on the third day, and if he did not do that, then he is no better than a liar. And as importantly, 
he would have proven that he was not a worthy sacrifice and that God had refused the sacrifice of Christ on behalf of his people. Jesus claimed he would go to the cross on behalf of his people and the resurrection and the glorification of Christ are a key part of that whole story. The Christian hope, the inheritance to which we hope to attain, it depends on Christ being who he claimed to be and all of who he claimed to be. He claimed to be God, the Son become flesh. He claimed to have lived a perfect life and to obey God perfectly. We depend on Jesus doing what he claimed to have done that is perfectly fulfilling the requirements of the law on our behalf and laying himself down as the sacrifice on behalf of his people. And in the resurrection and glorification of Christ, we can know that these things have been accomplished. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, has raised Christ again from the dead. And Christ is now far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He has been given the place of honor and glory as befits only the holy God, the Son. To say that Christ is above all rule and authority and power and dominion is to remind us that Christ has been raised not only from the grave, but he has ascended to the throne. We came back time and again and again to Hebrews chapter 1 in verse 3 where it says, After making purification for sins, he, that is Christ, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, becoming as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. No angel or demon or any other being in heaven or earth can, can, can claim the glory that God the Son has received at the hand of his Father. This same Jesus, who laid down his own life, this same Jesus whom man crucified, has now risen to rule and reign at the right hand of God the Father. But he does not idly sit on his throne awaiting the day of his return. No, according to Romans 8.34, we know that even now Jesus is at the right hand of God. Indeed, he is interceding for us. And in 1 John 2.1, we read that Jesus is our advocate with the Father. He has come before his Father, and he has come to be an advocate for us and to intercede for his people. Just because Jesus has ascended to the throne has ascended far above our earthly existence, doesn't mean that he has left his people behind. He ascended as now continuing his ministry as our great high priest before the Father in the heavenly temple. And as we will read later, he still remains the head of his church. Paul quotes Psalm 8, which Ed read for us earlier when he says that the Lord put all things under his feet. And when Paul says this in our passage, he's kind of bringing this whole prayer that he has here in for a landing. It's a core piece of this passage. 
There is some incredible theology that undergirds what we've read here this morning. The incredible glory of Christ, the power of God displayed in the resurrection and the glorification of the Son, and we must understand these things. But remember that specifically here, Paul is praying for the saints. The saints in Ephesus, he is praying for them. He wants them to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might. For us to just know things about God is well and good, and we should seek to know things about God, but there is an element where we need to know what that means for us, what that means for his people. And throughout Scripture, there's this awesome ebb and flow of God revealing things about himself and teaching his people of himself, then intertwined with these various elements of application and exhortation and comfort and encouragement. And each passage can contain multiple of these elements, but no passage of Scripture is without purpose and without intent. Just as there were no idle moments of Jesus' life that were without meaning, there are no idle pieces of Scripture. And as we learn here of the resurrection and glorification of Christ, Paul starts to draw it together, starting with that quote from Psalm 8, he put all things together under his feet. And if you go back to Psalm 8, the context of that passage in Psalm 8 is specifically directed at man as the pinnacle of God's created work. In Psalm 8 he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. That dominion language, if we're familiar with our Old Testament, should toss us even further back to the mandate given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created Adam to steward all of creation to bear forth God's image in creation. But we know how that story goes. God creates Adam. He gives him this task of bringing this dominion over the world, and he gives him one rule. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, Adam and Eve both eat, and in Adam, through the introduction of sin, all mankind is condemned. And yet Adam does still carry with him, and Adam's race does carry with them a mandate to rule over God's creation, even now marred by sin and the effects of sin. And then comes Christ. Christ comes and does what Adam should have done. He lives as Adam should have lived, perfectly obedient to God the Father, And in the end, the Father places all things under his feet. 
And he gave him, who is Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Adam and his progeny were meant to bear God's image into creation and to exercise rule and dominion as God's representatives in creation. And it was a task at which they failed quite spectacularly. They broke the clear commandments of the Lord and marred creation almost beyond recognition. And that continues until Christ comes as a second Adam. Romans 5 brings us really clearly to this whole idea of Christ as the second Adam. Starting in verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, death reigned from Adam to Moses. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. In Christ, the failures of Adam are swallowed up. The success of Christ, the righteous life and perfect obedience that Adam should have accomplished is accomplished. And in the resurrection and glorification of Christ, the incredible and almighty power of the Lord is abundantly on display. The Lord, by the might of his power, raises and glorifies the perfect Son and in that one moment, as by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. In the resurrection and in the glorification of Christ, all of the brokenness that came through Adam is set right for those who are in Christ. In that moment, the inheritance of the saints is secured, for God has accepted the sacrifice of the Son. The infinite value of Christ's sacrifice is recognized as having paid the infinite penalty due for all who would come to Christ. For all who, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. We are holy and blameless before him based upon the resurrection of Christ. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Again, God places everything under the feet of the one who has accomplished these things, Jesus Christ. 
And then he does something equally as incredible. He gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. If we really get into it, the wording here in the ESV could be difficult for us. What does it mean that God gave Christ as the head over all things to the church? Christ is not handed over to the church to do with as they please, even as Pilate handed Christ over to the Jews. Christ is not handed over to the church in that way. We cannot do with Christ as we please. We cannot do with Christ and his word as we please. Christ has been given to the church not as a tool or to become subject to his people. Christ has been glorified beyond all earthly powers or abilities to contain him. Instead, Christ has been given to the church in the sense that God has given the church their king that they so desperately needed. Christ has been given to the church as the priest that we could not raise for ourselves. Christ has been given to the church as the prophet that would speak only truly and clearly and rightly the word that comes from the Father. This church, both in Ephesus and beyond, that Paul is praying for has been given the incredible, risen, glorified Son as their leader. Paul calls Christ their head. This body of believers is to be led and directed and guided by God the Son himself. When we look at any organization throughout history, it doesn't matter whether you're looking at a business or a sports team or whatever you might look at, the key part of that organization is who leads it. It might come as a surprise to you, but in the last little bit, I have really started to enjoy combined orchestral and choir music, seeing this orchestra and this choir come together to bring out these amazing pieces, many, of, many times singing in languages they don't even understand. And what brings these two groups together, this orchestra and this choir, and makes them all work together to do what they do is the conductor. The conductor who himself is not playing any of the instruments, he is the one that is directing every part of this whole piece. You quiet now, you up now, and brings them all together. He organizes the whole thing. It doesn't matter what organization you're a part of, who it is that's leading that organization is going to be key to how that organization functions. And we have the privilege of being called the body of Christ, headed by God the Son. And we have been given the privilege according to His will and according to His power to accomplish and affect His works in this world. The power that has accomplished this seemingly insurmountable task of reconciliation between God and man is the incarnate God, the Son, Jesus Christ. The same power that raised the Lord Jesus from the grave and lifted him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named is the same one at work in the hearts and lives of the saints as the individual members of Christ's body and 
more particularly in this passage, by virtue of their connection to Christ the head as part of the church. Paul prays that the saints would know the incredible power and greatness and might of the Lord. And he gives the example of Christ's resurrection and glorification and ties it up that this same Christ and the same power that has raised and glorified him is the head of the church. When we see ourselves as Christ's body, we have to be aware that this body only has strength and power and vitality and life because of the one who is the head, our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to realize that this great inheritance that we have, which has been promised and sealed in the giving of the Holy Spirit, is entirely dependent upon Christ. Both his life and his death, as well as his resurrection and glorification. We've talked much lately about our responsibility as saints to worship God in the church and worship God with the use of our gifts in the church and to be involved in the works of the church. This is not simply because it is a good thing to do. This is not simply because, well, someone needs to do it. We have been tasked with working as a part of the church because Christ is the head of the church and we are the body of Christ. God has gifted us each individually with specific gifts designed for use in the church. And as such, every single one of us in our Christian walk has the responsibility of using our gifts and abilities not just on our own, not just in our own spheres, but in the context of the gathered church. And I encourage each one of us to find ways to connect with our church and to use our gifts and our abilities for God's glory in the church. As Paul finishes his opening salvo in this letter to the saints in Ephesus, he ends not only with an incredible exposition of the wonders of the resurrection and the glorification of Christ. He also reminds these believers whom he is about to exhort regarding the nature of their faith and the nature of the church. He reminds these believers that all of this comes only because of the risen and resurrected Christ whom is the head of the church, given charge of this communion of saints, and without whom there is no church, and without whom there is no communion of saints. So as we go from here this morning, as we live the life of both individual followers of Christ, walking out our Christian life in day to day, and as corporate members of Christ's body, the church, let us always return to our awareness of the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. If we know the immeasurable power of our God, who is capable even of raising Christ from the grave and glorifying him to his own right hand, there is no power, no anything in our world that can stand between us and what God has called us to do. 
And if we know, according to Scripture, that God has called us to share his gospel with the nations, to be his image bearers in creation, to go forth into our friend groups, go forth into our workplaces, go forth into our homes and our families, and bear the image of Christ and bear the good news of the gospel, the power to do that is found in Christ, and we can know that power is found in Christ because that power has been exercised in raising and glorifying our Lord Jesus Christ. May each one of us live to the praise of his glory, and may each one of us in all things give glory to Christ. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, we thank you that for most of us here, most of us listening online, you have granted that we might come and know you. You have given us the gift of faith. And you have given the gift of your Holy Spirit, and we have seen fruits that point to real and vital faith. But Lord, the world that we live in is hard. The world that we live in is against you, and it is easy to, at times, lose faith and lose heart in the face of the difficulties that we would face. But remind us to look towards your immeasurable power and your immeasurable greatness and your fantastic glory that you have displayed in all things, not the least of which is the resurrection and glorification of your Son, Jesus. May we be encouraged that the Son has been raised and glorified. May we worship for the Son has been raised and glorified. May we live for you because the Son has been raised and glorified. May our eyes remain always fixed upon your Son, Jesus. No matter the joys or the pains, the absolute mountaintop highs or the deepest valleys of lows, may our eyes remain fixed upon your Son, knowing that you have worked greatly in your people and you have placed your Son as the head of the church, that we have a great prophet, priest, and king that is our leader, that is taking us forward, and we can trust our leader, we can trust the direction he is taking us, for he is the one true God, the Son. Lord, may you be glorified in your church. And may you be glorified in the way that each one of us lives our lives, and may we use our lives for your glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name.